Father, no one came today to hear a man speak. We all came to hear you speak. You are the one who can eliminate barriers between your word and our hearts. Would you do that today? Would you declutter our minds? Would you position our souls to do work? We do not study the Bible to make the head fat, but the heart right. We realize that this passage does not merely accurately record history of an event that happened over, over 3,000 years ago. It also accurately reads our hearts, and trains our souls to love your son. Beat into our understanding that there is nothing more we need at this moment than your words from this text. For all my friends in the room who may not be Christians, I ask that you make this talk clear to them. Draw them. For all my friends in the room who are Christians, I ask that you make this word sweet to them. Encourage them. Holy Spirit, we are completely dependent on you to make the book live to us. Completely dependent on you to make Jesus sweet to us. May this be another Sunday in which we leave with confidence that your word alone is enough to sustain your people. Help us to listen like this will be the last sermon we ever hear. Help us to listen like we will leave this sermon and then enter into your presence. This is our corporate plea. Amen. The text opens with an old man crying. He's been crying for a while. Deep sobs that shake the whole body. It's Samuel the priest. He's in mourning. God had called him to anoint a king over Israel, and he did. He anointed a big farm boy, Saul. King Saul started out well, but faded quickly. He began to flagrantly disobey God. God just revealed to Samuel that he's rejected Saul from being king. Samuel loves Saul like a son. He has great affection for Saul. Samuel's grief is deep and painful. To grieve is right. He hurt for Saul, his adopted son, if you would. He hurt because Saul wasn't hurt. Saul was hardened. His heart was hardened toward God. He hurt for the nation of Israel. He doesn't want a civil war and a mad dash to the throne. He knows this will weaken Israel in the eyes of the surrounding nations. He hurt for the cause of God. The glory of God is tarnished. Samuel grieving. In the Hebrew, the word pictures a continual grieving. Samuel won't stop. He will not let this go. He will not move past this disappointment. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to grieve. 
It is not okay to live there. Samuel is gently chided by the Lord. Notice verse 1 of our text. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. In other words, get up, wipe your tears, fill your horn with oil. My plan has not failed. My glory can't be diminished. It's impossible. In the midst of Samuel's sorrow, God comes along and teaches him something about his sovereignty. And that's what you need. When you're in the midst of sorrow, you need God to come along and teach you something about his sovereignty. That's exactly what God is doing with you from this text. Some of you thought you knew what sorrow was until about a week ago or a month ago. Some situation changed and it destroyed you. Some event came to light and it wrecked you. You you see some heart like Saul's become more and more hardened and you like Samuel are sitting in a puddle of tears. Your life on this side of the grave is going to be marked with grief. You can grieve without sin And you can grieve with sin. It's a fine line. Samuel crossed it. God said to Samuel, I know you're grieving. But you need to look up and realize that I have not lost control of the ship's steering. I'm still in control of the outcome of this nation. I'm sovereign over my people's failures. Saul's heart didn't catch me off guard. The condition of of his heart may be new to you, Samuel, but it is not new to me. Here's grace for the grieving. My plan marches on. Dear hurting believer, you can't come up with a set of circumstances in which you should not trust God. It's almost as if the grief had paralyzed Samuel. God says, while you're over there and can't take a step, I've ordained the next steps. Fill your horn with oil and start stepping toward Bethlehem. Your fears will be relieved in Bethlehem. Your tears will be dried in Bethlehem. Your mourning will turn into rejoicing in Bethlehem. God is not one who dwells on the past, but one who draws Israel into the future. Samuel is now in search of a new king. Samuel did as God commanded. He filled his horn with oil. This was likely a ram's horn. A ram had died or or been sacrificed, and his horn was adapted and adjusted and used for this task. 
Samuel poured olive oil into the horn. And I imagine at that moment, he, he had to feel deja vu. He had done this before when he anointed Saul king on that old dirt road in Gilgal. Israelite kings were not crowned with crowns, but anointed with oil. This was a tradition held by other nations as well. As Samuel fills the horn with oil, he asks, verse 2, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. See, Saul was rejected, but still in office. He's unfit to lead the nation, but he still leads the nation. The relationship between Samuel and Saul had declined quickly. So quickly that Samuel was sure that his adopted son would kill him if he caught him with a horn full of oil. If I take steps to replace Saul, he will have me killed. Saul is increasingly unhinged by this time. He's capable of just about anything. Samuel said, I don't want to get killed. God says, that's okay. I've got that covered. Go to Bethlehem under the cover of offering. What God commands here causes some real consternation among some readers. Is God telling Samuel to lie? Is God giving him a fake ID to get past the guards and into Bethlehem? Is this divine deception? No. This is being wise as serpents and harmless as doves, as Jesus said. But even if this was divine deception, the Lord can deceive his enemies to bring judgment on them. I do really love that Samuel's grief is consoled and his fears are relieved by the word of God. Verse 3. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. There was a particular family of rural shepherds, breeders, that God wanted Samuel to contact. Make sure Jesse gets invited, and then I'll show you what to do next. Samuel begins the 11-mile trek to Bethlehem. Not very far for us, but quite a journey back then. Notice verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? The town leaders greet Samuel, but apprehensively. Uh, is there something wrong? It wasn't usual for the priest of God's people to show up to their small rural town. This wasn't typical. This was out of the ordinary. Why were they so frightened? I wonder if the whole news about what happened to Agag had spread like wildfire. You remember last week, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces with a sword. They ask, are you coming peaceably? Meanwhile, looking to see if... He has a sword. 
Another possibility for asking this question is that in addition to a priest, Samuel functioned as a judge. Judges would come to small towns if a murder or some other crime had occurred. They would come to investigate and mete out the judgment. Verse 5, And Samuel said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, this is a high honor for the town of Bethlehem. The religious leader of Israel is coming to offer sacrifices in their town. And after, he will lead a town-wide feast. This is a huge affair all taking place in the public arena. And in, in fact, this was such an honor that everyone had to go through ceremonial bathing just to attend. So we go from an altar scene to a feasting scene, from a very strict environment to a very casual environment. We pick it up in verse 6. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab, that's Jesse's oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, I'm not sure how you mentally picture this scene. But as Stephen Davey pointed out, this is not a pageant where all the contestants lined up and walked by Samuel in their high heels and maybe got asked a question by Samuel on how to solve world hunger and then he had to listen to absolutely ridiculous answers. In reality, this was more of a laid-back feast environment. There was a bit of hustle and bustle happening in the background. This was a typical introduction when you meet someone important. The father lines his boys up. Jesse must have been thrilled with the opportunity for his sons to meet the great prophet, judge, and priest, Samuel. When Samuel met Jesse's oldest son, he uncorked the ram's horn and was about to pour olive oil on his head. His head. Samuel was impressed with Eliab's impressiveness. He looked like Saul. Tall, big built, a presence about him. He had the it factor. He's the ideal Mr. Israel. The new search for a king has come to a close. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel is still looking for another king like Saul. He's biased toward appearances. But appearances can so easily be deceptive. Charles Spurgeon, who pastored in London, he and I are close friends, so I call him the Spurge. He's been dead for years. Uh, the, the Spurge said, How true it is that the Lord taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The gifts of personal appearance often become snares instead of blessings. Beauty is deceitful. and Favor is vain. I'm not looking at height, Samuel. I do not see as you see. Which leads us to our second truth. 
Do not function as though image is everything. We've been going verse by verse through the book of 1 Samuel, and you may have picked up on some of my patterns. When I preach the Old Testament, I usually do not interpret, uh, I usually do not interrupt the narrative with application like this. But I think this is vital and worth our pause. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, he has to be the next king. Look at him. Look at his image. Samuel loved God. Samuel walked with God. Samuel did the work of God, but still became caught up in outward appearances. Left without the word of God, we, like Samuel, begin to size people up and rank them on their appearance. We live in the most superficial age in history. We are obsessed with the exterior beauty, glitz, and perception. And for the most part, the church repeats this. How does the church choose leaders? Who makes it on the promotional material? What about you? When you look for a church, are you guilty of this? Do you get caught up in the exterior glitz and, and glamour? What if there were only 10 people here this morning instead of a room full of people? Would you still be here? What if our building wasn't new and your pastor wasn't built like Dwayne the Rock Johnson? Would you still be here? God doesn't see as man does. God's eyes see truly. God never looks down from heaven and says, wow, what a nice physique. Are you a workout addict? It's all you can talk about. It's all you can post about. Of course, I'm not saying working out is wrong. What I'm saying is you can be obsessed with external appearance. God doesn't want human beings to boast in their distinctives. God doesn't want you to frantically spend your life trying to earn approval based on things that are inconsequential. Did you know that eating disorders didn't exist 150 years ago? You are bombarded all day, every day by the reigning idolatry of our culture. Look on the appearance. Place the emphasis on beauty, on height, on stature, on perception. And for a split second, Samuel hoped in height. Hoped in stature. God's word brings gentle correction. Don't place your hope in those things. The Bible is not saying there is no place for beauty. It's saying it should not dominate your budget or your time or your hiring process or your search for a marriage partner. By the way, God is not saying here, <laughs> I'm not going to use the, the pretty people. I'm only going to use the people who were beat with the ugly stick. He's saying your natural tendency is to put too much value in exterior image. The story continues, verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab. Now this is Jesse's second oldest son. And made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, this is important. God is communicating with Samuel secretly. Samuel is hearing, this is not the one I have chosen. This is not the one I have chosen. But no one else is hearing that. Everyone else just sees a father introducing his boys to the famous prophet. Verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. For I will not sit down till he comes here. Now this is the first indication that Jesse or any of his sons pick up that Samuel is on some kind of a quest. Jesse is left to assume, as many evangelical scholars point out, that Samuel is just looking for an assistant, a helper. Davy says it's probably the grace of God that keeps Jesse and his sons in the dark. Had they been informed that Saul's dynasty was doomed, that Saul's son Jonathan would not reign after him, had they been informed that Saul was losing his mind and Samuel was doing an undercover mission, had they been informed that Samuel was actually looking to find Saul's replacement, had they been informed, they would have flipped because they are now guilty of treason. Saul would put all of them to death if he found out. Are these all your boys? Well, I have one more. The katan. That's Hebrew. The katan. It has, it has multiple meanings. I have the smallest one, the youngest one, the insignificant one, the forgotten one. David, Jesse, does not seem to value his youngest. David does not seem to have been the tender one of his father. He's the runt. That's why he's out keeping sheep. In the narrative, David is presented like a male Cinderella. He's left to his domestic chores while the other siblings get the privilege of attending the town ball. Also notice that the first mention of Saul in the scriptures and compare that with the first mention of David in the scriptures. <laughs> when we first met Saul, he had lost his father's donkeys. And in a sense... A failed shepherd. When we first meet David, it's the exact opposite. He's keeping his father's sheep, keeping them well, keeping them safe. Samuel said to Jesse, do you have another son? Yes, he's in the field. They evidently stand looking at each other. Samuel's waiting for Jesse to say, but let me fetch him. Jesse never volunteers. Do you have a son? Yes. Go get him. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. The narrator describes David as ruddy. David and Esau are the only two in the Bible referred to as ruddy. 
The word means red. Most scholars believe David was red-headed and had red cheeks. The author reveals he was a handsome young man with beautiful eyes. Samuel hears, not everyone else, just Samuel hears, anoint him. He's the next king. Now, Westerners reading this may be tempted to read these descriptions as complementary attributes. Well, he's got nice eyes. He's attractive looking, nice to look upon. But the point is, he looks more like a cute kid than a strong warrior. This is hardly someone you would think of as a king. The least of the brothers, the least of all, the unimpressive was the object of the Lord's choice. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Let's stop here for a moment. This is taking place publicly. It's at the town festival. Other people are seeing this. David's brothers and father are, are watching this unfold. As they see Samuel uncork the ram's horn and then slowly pour it over David's head, Stinky David, by the way, coming in from the field. He's not ceremonially washed. The crowd watches as the shapeless, invasive fluid crept down David's face and worked its way over his lips and down his neck. What are the brothers thinking? What is Jesse thinking? I agree with the scholars that they are probably thinking David was... David has just been chosen as an apprentice with Samuel, a disciple of Samuel, a little Elisha to his Elijah. Samuel does run a school of prophets, and maybe David just received a full-ride scholarship to it. I don't think anyone knew it was kingship. That would have been too dangerous. Plus, Jesse sent David back to the field after this, which shows he didn't know what it fully meant. Which leads us to our third truth. God uses and chooses surprising people. He chose David, the youngest, the smallest. And this is his pattern. See, the oldest son was typically the treasured son. He receives all the inheritance. He receives all the benefits. But God often reversed it. He chose Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Moses, not Aaron. He chose the younger son of Adam, the younger son of Abraham, and now he chooses the youngest son of Jesse. He always chooses the son. Everybody forgot. God chose Israel when they were puny. What made God choose David over his brothers? What did he have that his brothers did not have? Well, I mean, verse 7 tells us. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Implying that David had a better heart. He chose David because of his heart. And that is how most people preach this text. But here's where that pesky grammar sentence structure gets us again. I do not think that's the intent of the verse. And you say, well, I've, I've, I've always heard it preached like that. Well, if you step away from this and you do, <laughs> it's 
what I call, if you Stephen Furtick this text, all right, if you Stephen Furtick this text, you will come away with things like this. If God wants to take you from the pasture to the palace, no one will stop him. Everybody claps and... Or, or you come away with something like this. It doesn't matter what others see in you. It only matters what God sees in you. And he sees royalty. Yeah. And I'm like, excuse me while I puke in my mouth. Listening to you misuse this text and make it some sort of halftime pep talk. God does see the heart. I'm not denying that. I'm merely saying that isn't what the text is saying here. This whole episode is built on the word look. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. Okay, so God looks on the heart. Okay, so God saw David's good heart and decided that he would choose him to be king. David's heart. The good heart? The heart that, that contrived a plan to kill a man so he could steal his wife? The heart that lusted after a woman and had an affair with her? <laughs> a good heart? David had a murderous, adulterous heart. Not a good heart. The Scottish pastor Alistair Begg and the Australian theologian John Woodhouse have helped me to understand this. They contest that the verse is, the verse is better translated, man sees with the eyes, the Lord sees with the heart. And that is what it says in the original language. Man looks with the eyes. God looks with the heart. The Lord looks according to his heart. It's God's heart being highlighted, not David's heart. God is, is not looking to see if someone meets all of his qualifications in order for him to choose him. No, his choice originates from his own heart, not man's heart. In other words, it's not that David has a lot of good in his heart. It's that God has a lot of David in his heart. David didn't have special qualities that made him attractive to God. God chose David according to his electing love and perfect will. David doesn't leave strutting like a peacock. Why? Because he knows it's God's grace that chose him to be king. Man sees with the eyes. The Lord sees with the heart. That's the emphasis of the verse. The Lord sees with the heart. David is now king-elect. King-in-waiting. This is not the inauguration. This is a private secret anointing. Verse 11. Verse 13b. 13b. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David is presented as so obscure in the text that his name isn't even mentioned until verse 13. Here. David received an outward anointing and an inward anointing. The, the inward anointing is when the, the Spirit of God rushed upon him. This is not regeneration language. This is the Spirit's anointing on him as a king. This is the Spirit's empowering. Sarah, my, my wife, is reading a book on the Spirit's work in the Old Testament. And we've been talking through this topic. Uh, this book was written by Jim Hamilton. 
we met him briefly at a, at a baseball game where my kids attend school. There, there are many different views on this, and, and some of my heroes differ, but, but I'm with Hamilton on this. I do not believe that the Holy Spirit indwelt Old Testament believers like he does with New Testament believers. You. They didn't need to be indwelt. God dwelled in a temple or a tabernacle. He was with them. They could have regeneration without the Spirit's indwelling. Even though they were forgiven, they, they didn't know the indwelling Holy Spirit as you and I do. In the Old Testament, you really only see the Spirit of God rush on political leaders and prophets, as you see here. There, there's, a, there's a whole chart that lays out the six different positions here. We can e email the office and, and we can send it to you if you're interested. But I want you to notice what's happening. The Spirit comes upon David and then the Spirit departs from Saul. That's the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He came upon David and then withdrew from Saul. The removal of God's Spirit is the re removal of his anointing to rule. Saul was no longer anointed to rule. He, he no longer had God's Spirit empowering him. Notice verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Two spirits in this verse. The Spirit, capital S, God, and a harmful spirit, lowercase s, sent from God. The Holy Spirit leaves Saul and God sends a harmful spirit to torment him. Which leads us to our fourth truth. And it's this. God can use whatever he chooses to accomplish his plans. When the Holy Spirit leaves Saul and God sends a harmful spirit to torment him, this is when Saul's psychological state begins to unravel. Signs of mental instability begin to occur. Fits of depression and moments of paranoia begin to plague him. These mental and psychological problems will follow him for the rest of his life. Phillips says unrepentant sin is often the cause for emotional, psychological, and even physical distress. I, I like what Peterson says here. Peterson says God sent a black mood. A gloomy, suspicious, melancholy bordering on madness, a black mood. But it even, it has to be more than that. This is not merely a medical condition, it's, it's also a supernatural assault. Robert Burgeon said, God sent an angel of judgment. The word harmful, translated in the ESV, the translation we use here, the, the word harmful can be translated evil, evil spirit. And, and harmful is really a softened translation. So Calvin would say that there are, there are evil instruments in which lie in God's hands and he can bend them any direction he chooses so that they serve his purposes. And this should not disturb us. God is not the author of evil. But just like in the life of Job, evil spirits can't work unless the Lord allows them. No wonder David would pray years later in Psalm 51, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why would he pray that? He saw what happened to Saul. 
By the way, this is not a New Testament prayer. For us, the Holy Spirit comes with regeneration, never to leave. Verse 15. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let the Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servant, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. So they hold a little talent show. The Voice, Old Testament edition. See who can make the king's advisors turn their seats. Music in the Old Testament was viewed as a means to heal mental illness. The effect of music upon the mind is something that's even documented today. What Saul needs is musical therapy. Let's find someone who can use the guitar to soothe the mind. Verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. In other words, one of the king's advisors says, no need to hold the competition. I know just the man for the job, David. I went to check on my sheep last week, and he was playing his harp while shepherding his sheep. In fact, he's a courageous man, protecting his sheep from the most vicious predators. He's a warrior. Wait a minute. He's a rough and tough shepherd, but also likes to write music? Wait, he plays music, but doesn't wear skinny jeans? David was a warrior and a shepherd, but also a poet and a musician. He will be known as the sweet psalmist of Israel, who can also knock your teeth out if he needs to. It's unusual to find artistic talent in the rugged soldier type, but you find it here in David. <laughs> when, I, uh, when I hired Matthew, I first asked him, do you know the Lord? The second question, do you have good theology? My third question, are you generous to the work of God? My fourth question, do you wear skinny jeans? <laughs> to which he replied, I'm from West Virginia. To which I replied, you're hired. <laughs> it didn't quite go like that, but close. What, what, what kind of music drove away the harmful spirit? What was David on the piano playing Bach? I have a pastor friend who studies while listening to Bach. I feel sophisticated just talking to him. Was David on the trumpet playing Miles Davis? Something about jazz that just soothes the soul. Was David playing the violin or fiddle? What is the difference between a violin and a fiddle? It's the difference between strings and strings. It's the same instrument. David wasn't playing country music. Those of you from the Northeast told me that actually brings evil spirits. The type of music doesn't matter. It was, it was that the Lord was with David as he played. Verse 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. 
And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. You always bring gifts to the king. It's interesting that these three gifts were the exact three items carried by three men to confirm Saul's kingship. Verse 21, And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. Saul loved David. I wonder if that would ever change. Saul sent word back to Jesse. Thank you. David will stay here. He's just the one I was looking for. I'm very impressed with him. You see what just happened? Saul invites the future king into the palace. It will be 15 years plus before David officially takes the office, but he's already there and God is positioning him. His years of working with stubborn sheep will prepare him to lead a stubborn nation. Verse 23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre, the harp, and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. We see David apply the medicine that drives away the infirmity. We see Saul close his eyes and lean his head back while listening to David. He's not seeking the cause of his misery, merely relief from it. Well, God's plan is coming together. <laughs> he found his king in Bethlehem and brought him to the palace. You know, it isn't, it isn't the only time God found his king in Bethlehem. God found David among sheep grazing in fields. But in those same Bethlehem fields, 1,000 years later, was Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. David was a good king, but not a perfect king. Our heart yearns for another. Our heart yearns for this king. What was the message to Bethlehem? <laughs> Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. God will not take this king from Bethlehem to a palace. He will take this king from Bethlehem to a cross. And there he will hang between heaven and earth, bridging the gap between a holy God and an unholy people. Christ's sacrifice on the cross made it possible for people with bad hearts like David to find forgiveness. If you are hearing this message, it's because it was in the heart of God for you to hear it. Non-Christians, heed it. Christians, rejoice in it. Our fears are relieved in Bethlehem. Our tears are dried in Bethlehem. Our mourning is turned into rejoicing in Bethlehem. We are no longer in search of a new king. We have found him. We found him living sinlessly from the cradle to the cross. 
He was wrapped in swaddling clothes because the local inns would not allow Mary and Joseph to rent a room. Bethlehem was too busy, too occupied. Jesus was the homeless son in Bethlehem. He was the forgotten son in Bethlehem. In the Old Testament, the forgotten son of Bethlehem was David. In the New Testament, the forgotten son of Bethlehem was Jesus. In the Old Testament, the forgotten son of Bethlehem is described as beautiful. Look at his eyes. In the New Testament, the forgotten son of Bethlehem lost all his beauty so that you could see true beauty forever. Oh, by the way, Jesus rose from the grave three days after his death to fully cement that he's the unforgettable son of Bethlehem. He will not be forgotten by one nation, one tribe, or one people group. Revelation tells us and testifies that some from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people group will testify that Jesus reigns. How does he reign? As king of kings. And Lord of Lords. Let's stand and pray together. Father, as you promised through Micah 800 years before, you sent the final king through the house of David, you kept your word. We rest today because of our King, Jesus. You truly are the unforgettable son of Bethlehem. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.